I don't often carry cash with me. In fact, I suspect that many of you probably don't carry cash with you as well. But when I do carry cash with me, those times when I have a $20 bill or something and I go uh, to Walmart or the grocery store and I, I buy something and I hand her that $20 bill. Before they put it in the cash register, often they'll take it and they'll take a little marker and they'll check it. And I must confess in that moment, my heart always skips a beat. It's not because I am trying to trick them. It's not because I'm trying to use counterfeit money, but my mind tends to run wild with the what ifs. And I can just picture myself in the moment as that cashier takes that $20 bill and pulls out that marker and she is checking it, my mind runs to, I'm going to spend the night in jail. My kids, how are they going to get home? In reality, it's not that big of a deal. But she's checking to see if it is counterfeit. And they have to check, do they not? Because if that money is counterfeit, then it has, it has no power in that moment. I can't use it. It's just a copy of something that is real, something that does have power. Now, fake money does serve a purpose. Think of the toy cashier machines that maybe you had as a little girl or a little boy. Krista tells me stories often of when she was a little girl, she had a little cashier thing, and she just thought that was the greatest thing ever. She was using her money pretending. Right? It, serves a, it serves a purpose there. As kids are playing and, and they're buying something from the store and they can give their money and put it in the cashier and they get changed back and they, they're starting to learn the process of using money. It's teaching lessons even there. Think of something like Monopoly and Monopoly money. Right? It serves a purpose in the game. It is fun. But outside of the game, it has no power in and of itself, does it not? It's just a copy of something that is real in the real world. In the real world. It has no power. It is just a shadow, a replica, a copy of what is real. Of something that does have power. Over the last several weeks, we have worked our way through Hebrews 9. And in starting even in Hebrews 7 and 8 into Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews has masterfully compared and contrasted the priesthood and the sacrifice of Jesus with the priesthood and the sacrifices of the law. We've seen that Jesus is a better priest from a better priesthood who offers a better sacrifice and has entered a better place. And all along, the author of Hebrews has made it clear that the earthly tabernacle and its sacrifices is just a picture. It is a copy. It is a shadow that points ahead to something greater. There was no real power there. They teach the lesson of the need for purification, but they provide no real purification deep in the heart of man where it is needed. There's no power to save there. 
But as we come to Hebrews 9, 23 to 28 this morning, the author of Hebrews sums up really everything that he has said to this point by showing us that although there is no real power in the blood of bulls and goats, there is real power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look in that passage, that's really the, the theme of this message. The theme of this passage. Those simple words. There is power in the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, we'll see the power of Jesus' blood and the promise of Jesus' blood. First thing we see is the power of Jesus' blood. And my clicker is not working. If you want to move that slide ahead one. The power of Jesus' blood. Verses 23 to 26 says this, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. First here, note the need for Jesus' blood. Look back to Hebrews 9.22 and remember where we ended last time we were together in Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Blood must be shed. In fact, the therefore of Hebrews 9.23 reaches back to Hebrews 9.15-22. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So, what did we see in Hebrews 9.15-22? That even the first covenant had to be established with blood. And he repeats that here in verse 23. It was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, all right, what are the copies of the things in the heavens? Well, that would be what he's already established to be the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle and those sacrifices, everything around. It is a copy that looks forward to something greater, something even more real. And that is the things that are in the heavens. So it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, which would be the things on earth, the tabernacle, should be purified with these. What is the these there? The these is the blood of bulls and goats. It was necessary that the tabernacle and these instruments used in worship should be purified with the bloods of bulls and goats. But better things require a better sacrifice. That's what the author of Hebrews says here in verse 23. That was good for the copies. 
right? The blood of bulls and the goats, it accomplished its purpose when it came to the tabernacle. When it came to the, the altars and the lampstands and the things that are used in the tabernacle. All these things that point to heaven itself, to the presence of God. The, bull, the, the blood of bulls and goats worked for that. But something that is better needs a better sacrifice. Better things require a better sacrifice. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now don't get carried away with the author's analogy here. Because at first it might grab our attention and say, well, hold on. Why did the heavenly things need to be purified if they are in heaven in the presence of God? They are pure, are they not? Well, you're right, they are. The author here is making an analogy. He's not implying that the heavenly things need to be purified. Rather, he's making a comparison. The blood of bulls and goats is adequate for what is earthly. But it comes nowhere close to meeting the demands of what is heavenly. A better sacrifice is demanded, and this better sacrifice is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. The heavenly tells, tells them things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Christ didn't rise from the dead and then walk into the tabernacle or the temple. He didn't walk into the holy of holies here on earth. He walked into the presence of God itself. I think it's important here for us to pause and to remember the immediate audience of this book of Hebrews. I've mentioned this throughout the book of Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers in the church. And do you remember what, what the draw is on them? What is their temptation? It is to run back to the law, is it not? to the system of sacrifices, Levitical priesthood, that, that is home to them. That is easy to them. That makes sense to them. They want to run back. That, that is what is pulling them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, guys, that is just a picture. Yes, it served a purpose. But it points to something greater. Don't settle for the shadow when the real is here. And with the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making here in verses 23 and 24 between this shadow, this copy, and the real that has come in Jesus Christ, Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, really does a good job of pointing this out. In fact, he says this, that the holy place on earth, notice it is said here, to be made with hands. Now that is remarkable because this term is regularly used of idolatry in the Old Testament. He gives several verses here. Leviticus 26, 1 and 30, Isaiah 2, 18, Isaiah 10, 11, Isaiah 16, 2, Isaiah 19, 1, Isaiah 21, 9, Isaiah 31, 7, Isaiah 46, 6, Daniel 5, 4, Daniel uh, 5, 4 and 23, Daniel 6, 8. All right, he gives all these examples of made with hands. Regularly, it's used of idolatry in the Old Testament. 
It goes on to say, Paul uses the term to indicate Athenian idolatry in Acts 17.24, referring to their temples made with hands. Now, it doesn't seem likely that the author of Hebrews is making precisely the same point here. After all, the tabernacle was commanded by God and typologically points to God's presence in heaven. Nevertheless, there is a criticism implied in the use of the word. If the recipients of the letter turn to the Levitical cult and sacrifices now that the better has come, then such a move would be comparable to idolatry. What he says there is that one of the things implied in this to, the, to, the, to these Hebrews to the recipients of this letter, the author of Hebrews is saying is, guys, the better has come. And if you choose to cling to the law rather than to trust in Jesus, then you are clinging to a shadow. In effect, you are clinging to an idol. To worship a copy when the real has come is tantamount to idolatry. The better has come. Look to Jesus. Look to his blood. Cling to his cross. And praise the Lord that Jesus was not limited to the tabernacle, but that he walked into the very presence of God. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Meditate on those last two words, for us. In fact, take out the us and just say, for you, for me. Jesus did that for you. You see, the presence of God was nothing new for Jesus. In fact, it's his rightful place. He has been there from eternity past. The reason he had to enter it again is because he died for you. Jesus did not view the presence of God as something to be grasped, as Philippians 2 reminds us. He had been there from eternity past. It was his rightful place. He is God himself. The difference is that now he sits in the presence of God for me. He left that presence. He took on flesh. He lived a life. He died and suffered for me. He shed his blood for me. He rose from the dead for me. He ascended on high and returned to the presence of God for me. He did it for me, not for himself, for my sin, and for yours. And he ascended into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Don't read over those two words. Pause there and meditate on that. For me. He's in the presence of God. He's pleading for me. Verses 25 to 26, we see the sin that his blood defeats. 
He didn't do this, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. This is a point that the author of Hebrews has already made, is the high priest has to return year after year. That sacrifice of the blood and bulls and goats, it doesn't last forever. He has to come back because the people keep sinning. Time and time again. But the power of Jesus' blood is found in the efficacy of Jesus' blood. As we see here in these verses, the eternal blood of Jesus is eternally effective. It is a once-for-all, fully sufficient sacrifice. And what is it sufficient to do? See, if he would, if he would have had to do that, then he would have had to do it from eternity past. If Jesus had to continually enter into heaven, if he had to continually die, well, then he would have had to have been doing that since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, once in the perfect timing of God, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is the blood of Jesus sufficient to do? It is sufficient to put away sin. Perhaps in the English, our translations are a little too tame. A 5th century theologian, Theodoret of Sire, he says this, he says, Jesus completely destroyed the force of sin. What is the blood of Jesus sufficient to do? It is sufficient to completely destroy the force and the power of sin. Sin has no more power. It has no more claim over you. Should one rise up and bring an accusation against you, the blood of Jesus pleads your cause for eternity. Sin has no more demand over you. It has been destroyed, wiped out, never to raise its ugly head again because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is effective, it is sufficient. He's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, not by the sacrifice of another. But he did this. He sacrificed himself for you. So see the power of Jesus' blood. The power that ushers him into the very presence of God. The power of him sitting there at the right hand of the Father pleading for you, the power to put away sin. Now see the promise of Jesus' blood. And the complete forgiveness of sin, starting here in verse 37. It has been pointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Verse 27 is a verse that we know has been appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. This is both a truth and a warning. The point, the larger point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that as men only die once, so Jesus only died once. That is what he's getting at. He cannot die again. 
But I do want to pause here for a second and note the reality of this verse. Not only does it apply to Jesus, but the reality is that you will live and you will die. One time. And you will be judged. You will stand before God. Take a moment to ponder that. To let it sink in that this verse is true. Men live and men die. And the weight of eternity hangs on the few years of this life. You will stand before God. You believe that. Does your life testify that you believe that? Does your evangelism testify that you believe that? You will live, and you will die, and you will stand before God. Again, don't, don't zoom past that. Meditate on those truths, on that reality. Let it sink deep into your soul. Let the reality of that truth grab you. It is that reality that has led many a missionary to the field as they recognize that they have one life and this life is not their own. Only what's done for Christ will last. The author of Hebrews here is focusing on the word once. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. You see, Jesus died once. As a man, he cannot die again. Men live once and they die once. So not only does Jesus' death not need to be repeated because it is uh, effective, it is sufficient, but it cannot be repeated. Men live and die once. And Jesus lived and died for you. But here there's an interesting phrase I want to focus on. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That might strike you as odd. Why does it not say to bear the sins of all? Why does the author of Hebrews here say many? Well, I think John Calvin helps us to understand this when he says this. To bear or take away sins is to free from guilt by, this, by his satisfaction those who have sinned. He says the sins of many, that is, of all, as in Romans 5.15. It is yet certain that all will receive no benefit from the death of Christ, but this happens because their unbelief prevents them. By the many, he means the all. You see, the comparison here is between Christ the one who died one time and the sins of the many that are forgiven. It is a comparison between one and many, or one and all. And what we see here is that the blood of Jesus is eternally and universally powerful. It covers the sins of the whole world, and yet even, as Calvin notes, 
Not all will come to faith, but that happens because of their unbelief, not because of Jesus' failure. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now as you come to verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. A second time, apart from sin, for salvation. He will not come in order to deal with sins again. He has dealt with sin. It is sufficient, it is universal, it is covered. He is done. And yet, the hope of this passage is, he is coming again. Another commentator, David Allen here, makes a powerful observation. He says this, The two appearances of Jesus mentioned in Hebrews 9, 26, and 28. So his first appearance, to take away sin, to put away sin. His second appearance, to bring salvation. Or as we've seen already in Romans 8, the last few weeks, to uh, bring glorification, to complete what he has begun. So the two appearances of Jesus mentioned in Hebrews 9, 26, and 28 correspond to the appearances of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. His first appearance was in the outside courtyard to offer the sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. From here, he entered the sanctuary, carrying the blood for atonement, and in so doing, he passed out of the sight of the people. The people anxiously waited for him. Upon completion of his duties in the inner sanctuary, he emerged to the great joy of all the people. In a similar fashion, Jesus, our high priest, appeared the first time in his incarnation to make atonement for our sins on the cross. His ascension took him out of sight into the presence of God where he continually appears as our advocate. One day, he will return to this earth and appear again a second time to bring final salvation. Brothers and sisters, he is coming again to complete what he has begun. And there's a challenge here in this passage. Notice that it is to those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the question is, are you eagerly waiting? The challenge to the original audience is, are you still looking for a Savior to bear the sins of the world? Or are you looking for a Savior to come back who's already put away sin and who's coming back victorious? question to us is the same. Are you waiting for Jesus to come back victoriously to take you home? Are you eagerly waiting, longing for that day? Because he is coming. He is coming. Are you waiting for him? Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus and be encouraged this morning. In him you have been forgiven, and in him you will be saved. The limitless demand of the law has been satisfied by the endless life of Jesus Christ, your risen Savior. So what does that mean for us? It's a call to be faithful. When you are tossed about by doubt, do not waver. In the depths of depression, rejoice. When you are overcome by weakness, keep on. 
Cling to Jesus and be faithful. For he will not fail you. His blood is efficient and effective. And his promise is sure. In the midst of confusion or tragedy, remember your undying hope because of your death-conquering Savior. When life is beautiful and your heart is overcome with thankfulness. Right? So often in application, we think of those who are hurting. But brothers and sisters, even when life is beautiful, when everything seems to be falling into place, don't lean on your own understanding. But keep leaning on the blood of Jesus Christ. The truth of these verses provides direction and hope to life. Even as we eagerly wait for Jesus to come back. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, be faithful. I'll tune a regular Baptist church.